0: you done hi everybody this is bob gale co-creator back to the future and you're listening to brad gilmore Ah! okay
1: okay, relax doc it's me it's me it's martin Oh, it can't be just sent you back to the future oh i know you did send me back to the future but i'm back i'm back from the future I mean, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean. The way I see it, if you're gonna build a time machine in a car, why not do it with some style?
0: Well, this is heavy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Future the podcast, the only podcast looking back in time the grace film trilogy of all time. Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore, and we have a show for you today. Excited for today's interview, of course. Francis Lee McCain joins us on the program. Big deal here in the Gilmore household. We are all really excited about this one because uh, Francis, again, has actually been one who uh, I think that we've exchanged a a few emails over the years. And uh, for for one reason or another, timing, scheduling, pandemic, things uh, weren't able to happen. But now we finally have her on the show. Of course, she plays Stella Baines. The mother of Lorraine Baines, who is the future Lorraine's ba- Lorraine's Lorraine Baines McFly, who is the alternate Lorraine Baines Tannen. Yes, she uh, she is the mother of that, and this is such a fun interview because of several reasons. One, I've started to, as you noticed last week, with the Colt Peacemaker uh, Burton Gillum. Uh, I I really love and enjoy getting to hear kind of the lead up to the iconic role, you know, knowing the, the origin story. I think I've always said that I've really loved to know how things work, how things operate. So whether that was. Jumping into Clue, the movie, which I got a lot of great feedback from with my podcast from Jeff Smith, so I really appreciate that. Or talking to Burton Gillum about his whole rise and doing Paper Moon and that leading to Blazing Saddles and Richard Pryor's calling him at the fire station to all the way to Back to the Future and Fletch and all these great movies. I love hearing the origin story. And so uh, myself and Francis Lee McCain go on that origin story together. Uh, Of course, we talk about her getting into acting, her studying abroad in the U.K. for three years, which I just found to be insane that, you know, you would make that jump. But you know what? It was a different time back then. She took a swing, took a big swing, and it paid off. Um, loved hearing some of the work that she did with Albert Brooks and leading up to these pole 1980s films like Footloose with Kevin Bacon, the Amblin production, Chris Columbus directed... Gremlins, right? Um, These were big, big movies that led her to what? Back to the future. And one of the interesting stories here, she is one of the few that I've talked to, uh, at least about this in particular, and I've talked to a lot of people from the movies, right, and from the movie, and we've talked a little bit about... um, Excuse me, I mean Joe Dante. What did I say? Why did I say Chris Columbus? I meant Joe Dante. Chris Columbus did what that she was in. She did something with Chris Columbus. Why am I forgetting this? Hold on. I have to figure this out. Hold on. Joe Dante directed Chris Columbus movie. Okay, there we go. We got there, guys. We got there. It was Gremlins. Sorry, I had to take a pause for the cause because I knew my well, I always for some reason think that Chris Columbus directed Gremlins, but it was Joe Dante. He wrote Gremlins doesn't matter. Uh, well, it does matter, obviously. It makes a big difference. But I just want to make sure that it doesn't matter to me. I, I got that right. Okay. So anyway, Francis Lee McCain, we also talked to her about working with Eric Stoltz, right? Working with him, shooting with him, and then having to come back and do it. And I think that out of everybody, she has such an interesting perspective because there's the one scene. You know, sometimes I call these actors home run hitters who can come into one scene, knock it out of the park, You don't see them for the rest of the movie, but they are so memorable. Uh, Burton Gillum is one of those. He was a home run hitter in Back to the Future 3. Frances Lee McCain is one of those in Back to the Future. But she had that interesting distinction of working with Eric Stoltz. I asked her about that. I asked her what these movies mean. I mean, Frances is still working today. Uh, She is a delight to talk to. A film lover, a film historian, of which I aspire to be someday— Let's go now to the wonderful Miss Frances Lee McCain on Back to the Future, the podcast. And she joins me now. Frances, how are you doing? I'm
1: doing really well, Brad. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic. It's, it's such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. I mean, somebody of your caliber, uh, I don't get the privilege uh, of talking to all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for your time. Um, I want to start where it really all started. You are, are now in, in the great state of New Mexico, but you are originally from Pennsylvania, according to my internet research. Um, <laughs> you uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, growing up and what, what did your parents do
1: for a living? My dad was for forty-four years with with uh, W.T. Grant Company, which uh, no longer exists as a as a retail business. But it had it was very much like Woolworths or Newberries, or, you know, the five and dimes uh, throughout the South and the West, particularly. Although uh, they moved up into the East and moved all across the all across the state. So, uh, Dad was with uh, Grant Company and. Consequently, we had a life that was sort of like an army brat's life. Mm. Um, He would get transferred as he was promoted and so forth. And and so we went basically from the East Coast to the West Coast and many points in between while I was growing up. Um, But it was it made for a very close knit family because we had to rely on each other so much. And we would get to set down some roots. I mean, we would stay an average of five years in a place. And we always felt the connection to the family back East. But um, yeah, so that's the way it was. That's the way it was for me. went to public schools and uh, then I went to college in Wisconsin. Then I went to drama school in London for three years. And then I moved back to the States after that and started my career.
0: So going to uh, school in London, I mean, that's a pretty big culture shock especially for 3 Good years part. and I mean that's that that that's a, that's a pretty big deal why yeah. did you choose to go uh to Europe to continue your education
1: it was the suggestion of uh Dr Philip Clarkson who had directed me in a few plays which I did extracurricularly in college because I was a philosophy major so I didn't uh, I didn't study acting there but I always loved to be in plays and when it came time for my graduation we were having a conversation and he was curious to know what i was planning to do and i had no plans
0: (laughs) as most college students don't right
1: exactly exactly. i thought i might be as we said back in the day a stewardess so that Mm -hmm. i could do some traveling and then he said had i ever thought of being an actor well i hadn't and i said no no how do you do that and he gave me a few suggestions and one of them was drama school in london and my my whole little self just perked right up, and I thought, ooh, London, and I thought I would go, oh, that'd be fun, I could go do that for six months or something while I figure out what I'm doing, and then I got there, and I realized this was a much more serious endeavor than I had understood, and I loved it, and I felt like I had really found my calling, so I stayed. Wow! So,
0: did you do plays in high school and middle
1: school and things like that, or not till you
0: got to college? I did
1: high school. I did mm-hmm. high school and college.
0: What plays were you in?
1: I was in a bunch of them. I did. I also did when I was in college. I did. Um, I I did summer rep. Uh, two c two two was it two summers? Maybe it was just one summer at University of Wisconsin and one summer at the University of Iowa, and uh, they were they were repertory plays, so I did Point of Departure by jean Uh I did The Miser, uh, Moliere, uh, so I did a couple, you know, I, I delved into some pretty, I had done, at, uh, at Ripon College, where I went to school to get my bachelor's, I had done a couple of Albi plays, which was pretty avant-garde for the time and place, but it was a great experience for me. I did a Sean O'Casey while I was there. So I had sort of fallen, and I did Shakespeare. I did As You Like It when I was in college. So I I had a real affinity for literature, and um, and so England was a perfect place for me to go after that.
0: So three years in England, in London, um, right. you, you come back to the States, and do you come back to Pennsylvania, or do you move no, around? No, I
1: came, I came back to Well, uh, we only lived in Pennsylvania until I was about 18 months old. Oh, okay. And then we moved to White Plains, New York, where we had family. My mother had gone to high school there, and she still had. This sister. we had cousins around. My grandmother was living there, uh, so White Plains is really the first place I remember. And we still had some good family, friends, and family in the area, so uh, that was a natural place for me. New York was the natural place for me to go, and also because I. I really thought my whole career would be in theater. And so New York was the place to go. Now we're talking about, when I got back, we're talking about 1969. That's a while ago. (laughs) So I was in London for the swinging 60s and uh, got back to New York. And because London, uh, certainly at that time, and I think it still holds true, sets their students up so well to move into a profession, I, I had introductions to agents back in the States. And that's the largest hurdle, really, for a young actor to go through. And for me, it was already sort of taken care of. So I had an unbelievably easy beginning. Didn't always stay that way, but the beginning and at least getting my my foot in the door was was really pretty, pretty easy for me. So, I was so you,
0: you say that you were um, always planning on staying in the theater or at least doing plays and things of that nature. When yeah. did you have your first foray? Cause you said you came back in 1969. So mm-hmm. did you do plays for several years in New York? And then somebody's well, your agent.
1: I, not, not so long in New York. I stayed not that long in New York, but then I went to uh, San Francisco to be with the, an with the American conservatory theater in San Francisco. And that was my, my heart's love, you know, was to be in repertory theater with a group of actors and, doing all these wonderful plays. So that was terrific. But uh, there was an upheaval in that company. And at the time I had, uh, and so I met and married uh, a young actor at that time. And um, there was a big upheaval in the company. And at that point we decided to go to Los Angeles. And one of the reasons we did that was because I did get cast down there in A Streetcar Named Desire with John Voight and Faye Dunaway. So we went down there on a kind of trial basis and decided, well, we would make the move and we would just see what happened and see what we could do. And it worked out for both of us. So, uh, that was 1973, I think is what, so it wasn't that long. It was about, I was back in the States about four years. So I was in and out of doing theater from then on.
0: I always find it fascinating. Somebody who comes from the stage to the screen and what you had to do to adapt to it, because it is a different medium. I mean, when mm-hmm. you're on the, when you're in the theater, you're projecting, you're trying to get to the back row in the auditorium. Mm-hmm. You're using that voice. The camera's right there. It can hear it all. It can see it all. Yeah. Um, did you have any issues making that transition kind of?
1: I think I probably smaller? did in a way, but what what was incredibly lucky for me was that very early on, and I think it happened almost, you know, within the first year I was in LA, which is crazy but but I was asked to come in and read for read across from uh, a group of men, five or six men. Sorry about that. I oh, you're to... fine. Um, who were reading for the role of uh, I, I can't think of I can't think of the character's first name, but Apple in in uh, Apple's Way, um, and. So I I read opposite all these actors, including Ronnie Cox, and and then they cast Ronnie Cox, and then nothing happened, you know, that was that, that was a little gig for me, that was fine, and it was interesting to do. And then I got a call maybe a couple of weeks later and said, well, they can't find they just got used to you (laughs) (laughs) seeing you play that role. And they didn't find anybody they felt was any was better. Would you like to do it? I said, Yeah. So I was in a series. And that's where I really got my boot camp in terms of film acting. And and the. um, What was his name? Rollins, R a w l i n s. He was the DP and he was just very patient with me. And he would come up very quietly, you know, when when stuff was after we'd rehearse something, and he'd say, Okay, look, this is what the camera's gonna see. So this is how so if you move this way or this way. And so he tutored me basically. And I and so we did 26 episodes of that. And and by the time we were on our fifth or sixth episode, I think I felt pretty intuitive about where how to deal with the camera
0: so then you do apple's way and i think it was george apple uh what was the name, Thank of the you, name you're right of. Yeah. um <laughs> i think of ronnie you know <laughs> exactly sure um <laughs> so you, you do apple's way you're getting used to being on the screen and w- did you go to your agent and say i want to do bigger films i want to do features i want to be on on the on the silver screen or how did that kind of come about because you I mean, you have some iconic credits um which of course we'll get I to do. Um, legendary credits so how do you find your way to that to that well
1: point? well first first things first um I was never I was never still am not good at promoting myself or or advocating for my own career I wasn't great at that I've just never been very clever about that um but but I did have a lot of great luck and I did get noticed occasionally by someone who was doing a great project and. I mean, of course, we talked about, you know, about, well, you should do this, maybe you shouldn't do that, that kind of thing. We would have those conversations. At that point, I was with the Gersh Agency. I really think of the Gersh Agency as being the, you know, the the agency that um, was behind most of, of, of what the great stuff was that I did. Um, but the other thing is, you are a working actor and you're going gig to gig and you're thrilled if you get apart, you know it's so unlikely. It's the the odds are so crazy, and it wasn't the world of of just shameless self promotion then either. You know, it, it really. Right. and I had no interest in having a manager because I felt like I've got a great agent. What do I need a manager for? So I, I never had that outlook or that point of view on the career. I just love doing the work. I. I was still able to do some theater. I worked a, a fair amount at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles and over the years. And so I was having a wonderful life. I was I was just really enjoying what I was able to do any, any given year as an actor. And you know, as I always have to remind the fans, nobody knew the, the films were gonna be iconic films. I mean, none of them. You always, you make a film, you throw your dice and you take your chance. And the fact that three or four of these films have wound up being the iconic films that they are is just as unbelievable to to me as it is to anybody else, you know. And all the filmmakers will say that, too. You don't go into it thinking, "Okay, this is a hit. This one's going to last 35, 40, 50 years. You just make a movie.
0: Yeah. But you do. I'm sure you've been on set sometimes. I've talked to some actors. You know when it's not working. Right. I mean, you you can feel sometimes "Mm, this this production just doesn't seem to have it.
1: Yeah. And you get better and better at that. And you can feel very strongly when there's just no imaginative mind at the helm. You know, it's just and television, unfortunately, is is has been I I don't think this is true any longer. But certainly at that time, it was a very rote kind of factory up way of doing things because it almost had to be given the technology of the equipment at that time. Now you know it's so mobile and it's so fast and wonderful. The uh, the technology of it is incredible. So you don't have big lights that you're carrying around everywhere. I mean, it still happens, but you can do films on a much smaller basis and get them done and have a lot of fun in the doing. So, but when when it would come along, when there would be somebody at the helm there a number of things that stand out. I mean, one of the most fun things I ever did was Albert Brooks' real life, which I still think is hilarious. But, uh, you know, that was the smallest budget thing I'd ever been involved in. But I loved his work. I just wanted to work with him. And he had seen me in a project that was a wonderful project called Washington Behind Closed Doors. And uh, he had seen me and he so he got in touch with the agency and said, I'd like to meet her. Well, I was thrilled because I just thought he was crazy good and a lot of fun. And uh, and then Chuck Roden got on that film. And suddenly there was just this lovely team working together. Very, very small, nobody making any money, schlepping our own costumes, all of that kind of thing. And it was just a great time. So there was that. And then and then to go on to the larger productions and and the larger production values, it it you know it's really who's at the helm, and and how do they work with you, and how do they work with the actors, and are they interested in actors' points of view? And many aren't, but you know, the really good ones are, and uh, and that makes it that makes it a lot of fun. So I will say that on all of the iconic projects, well, <laughs> with maybe one slight exception, um, I had a great no, I don't go into it. I had <laughs> a great time. And worked with wonderful actors, really giving terrific actors. And and uh, yeah, how lucky am I?
0: Oh, in, in, incredibly blessed, I'm sure. I've always thought that a director should listen. I mean, I'm sure every actor thinks that the director should listen to them. But no one's thinking about your character more than you are. You know, the director's thinking about your character, but not as much as as you are. And, and I don't know why more directors aren't receptive to that kind of input.
1: No, I, I know. I think... I think the really um, imaginative and confident uh, directors are. I mean, they do. Now, if you're working with somebody like, you know, who has just a, a very specific vision, um, is it, oh God, now I'm going to really be embarrassed, but it's Wes Anderson, isn't it? Didn't he mm-hmm. do um, uh, Hotel, what's this? you know, the...
0: Oh, uh, uh, yeah. uh, yes, he did. He did. <laughs> um,
1: you caught <call> well, me now, yeah, where I can't yeah, think of the name. I know, I know. Well, good. That makes two of us.
0: Royal Tenenbaums. No, um,
1: Budapest, uh, Grand Budapest. Budapest
0: Hotel. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got there. We got there. <laughs> um, you know, he, I love his. I love his style, and I think he's brilliant at what he does. So, if you're going into something in into uh, a director's work like that. That. You're going to have to have a real affinity and a feel for what they're, and and you will mold your work to be commensurate with their uh, their vision. But in that case, um, they they also, I, I I mean, he has a reputation for working with with actors really wonderfully, and and so I expect just from looking at his work that he's very good at working with actors.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you always look for that uh, as as an actor working with the director. Um, you you mentioned the iconic movies, of course, Footloose, Huge, Kevin Bacon. Um, I'm sure that got you got you a lot of recognition. Uh, after that, was that your first big hit where people started saying, "Hey, are you?"
1: No, I I don't think so. Um, yeah, I at that point in my in time, I was still being recognized quite a bit for Apple's Way. For Apple's Way. Yeah, so I think Apple's Way really kicked up the sort of recognition thing. So I I was kind of used to being recognized, not in a big way, but, you know, occasionally. And a lot of times people would know they knew me, but they couldn't figure out from where and was I their bank teller or. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just because of the nature of TV and especially a family show like that, where you're just kind of everybody thinks they know you and that's fine. You know, that's nice. Um, I was particularly delighted working on uh, Footloose because of the other actors who were in it, and we were we were sort of on in at summer camp together in in Provo, Utah. All you know, parked in the same motel, and we had a ball. I mean, uh, working with all of those actors was really a delight.
0: So, did Footloose lead to Gremlins? Was that kind of like a can I oh, can yeah. you draw a direct line there?
1: I, it's terrible because I I honestly I have so much trouble remembering exactly they came in a clump. Right. I feel like Footloose was let's see, how did that go? Um, they were both eighty four. They were both um, eighty four. And I think that it, I, I think what it came down to was that I was going to have to choose one or the other because they 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 had conflicting schedules. And God bless Steven Spielberg because I believe he's the one who uh, worked it out. So that I could come back and do Gremlins and do both. So they were, they were pretty simultaneous experiences in a way. Couldn't have been more different, just oh, yeah. in, slightly. <laughs> the experience itself, but they were really, they were both really a, a lot of fun in that way.
0: So I'm assuming the connection to Steven Spielberg then. Uh, in Gremlins, in Amblin, uh, that movie directed by Chris Columbus, you know, who, of course, did Home Alone and, and the Harry Potter films, the first couple. Great director. Um, really. Re- really great director. And I've listened to a lot of his interviews and he does seem like an actor's director.
1: Well, not at that. I have to say, not maybe not at that time. Gremlins was his first real breakthrough. Right. So he was very much listening to Stephen and Stephen was very much shaping that film. Uh I, I'm sure you've heard the story that originally my character was supposed to to um, be beheaded <laughs> with my with my head rolling down the stairs and so forth. Basically Stephen said to Joe Dante, well we're not gonna do that. Not <laughs> right. That's not gonna happen. Thank goodness. <laughs>
0: yeah, that that would have been that would have been a gruesome image. Um, but 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 the Steven Spielberg connection is that how you know Amblin being the production company, that's how you got on the radar for Back to the Future. I'm assuming
1: absolutely, absolutely true. Um, and Stephen, I knew on a, a kind of a backward sort of a way, kind of through actually Amy Irving, who had been, was his girlfriend at that time. They were a couple, or for a part of that time. And I knew Amy from American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. So I sort of knew Steven as her rather shy, goofy boyfriend. And he was kind of around, you know, and in people's radar, I, I remember Chuck Roden talking about him, you know. And so this guy, I guess this guy is a really sought after director. I I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> saw him at a party or something and thought, this guy, okay. Well, anyway yeah we all all have come to love and admire this wonderful human being he has he is and the amazing director producer oh he's incredible yeah Yeah,
0: i mean maybe one of the greatest storytellers in american history Mm -hmm. um you know, there's a, a, a line from Cubby Broccoli, who was the producer of the uh, James Bond movies, because Stephen oh, yeah. wanted to do a Bond movie. He <laughs> went to direct it. And uh, Cubby Broccoli's response was, well, let's see how your little fish movie does first. And then uh, <laughs> I think Steven got the better end of that one. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, so. So you go in for Back to the Future. Uh, what, what do you remember when you what was your first memory of getting contacted for the project?
1: Uh, I think probably it would have been my agent, uh, would have been Bobby Gersh calling and saying, you know, Steven specifically wants you to come in and meet this up and coming director that, you know, this, this film, he said, he's a little embarrassed because uh, he doesn't know if you want to do it. It's a really small role. And, um, you know, after I'd been in larger roles and gremlins and, and footloose, he, felt a little sheepish i think about asking me if i'd be interested well of course i was interested you know always i'm always interested and um and especially because he was behind it and i plus i got to go over to to the amlin uh (laughs) offices which had just opened up and everybody wanted to get in there and see what they were like and it was great and i met zemeckis robert zemeckis and i i think i i may have met bob gale in passing, I don't remember Bob being there in that particular meeting when I first met Robert, but it was just the simplest, most fun little meeting. He just basically just had a chat. It was kind of like the one in Gremlins. I just went in and met with with Joe and, um, you know, just had some nice chats about our lives and what we were all doing and how things were going. And then at the end of the at the end of the meeting, he said, well, I I'd, I'd love you to do this movie if you want to do this. movie. he said, "Oh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Let's do it." So that was thought.
0: Um, and uh of course, back to the future 1985, Michael J. Fox um was famously uh not the original Marty. Originally it was Eric Stoltz. Did you Good shoot on. with Eric?
1: I did. I did. Okay.
0: And how was that working with him?
1: Great. I mean, he had gone to school with my at USC with my niece uh, Christina Rideout and and she was uh, so I had seen a couple of his showcases as I recall and I knew he was a good actor so I was thrilled for him that he had gotten this, this opportunity and I, we had a very easy uh, reasonably easy pleasant day of shooting it was early on I believe in the process for them all of them and and then, uh, yeah, it went fine. We got all the work done. And that was that. I went home. I was, you know, that was that. That was the gig. And um, I, it must have been, I don't know how long it was, at least a month probably, um, when I got a call from Bobby saying, well, they've recast that role. I said, oh, no, you're kidding. Is everything okay? He said, yeah, he's fine. It just, you know, it just didn't work out. They wanted to go in another direction. That's the famous Hollywood. Yes. Play. Going in another direction. Oh, really? (laughs) Up, down, west.
0: Any way away from you, whichever direction (laughs) is away from you. That's (laughs) That's the
1: direction we're going. That's right. (laughs) Precisely. So uh so I said, Okay, all right, great. Who's gonna do it? He said, Michael J. Fox. I said, Oh, that'll be fun. Great, he should be very good in this. And um, so I went back and all the same people except Michael and then as we as soon as we got to work i felt like oh very different energy oh this is this is fun it just kind of lifted all boats in a way it had more of a just an ensemble kind of a feel to it i think um you know and looking back on it, it it's everything that is everybody sort of understands about why they decided to go in that direction. Eric was a fabulous actor. He was a really wonderful actor. He's a little more cerebral than uh, Michael, a little more internalized than Michael. Michael's a much more extroverted, puts it out there kind of an actor. Equally good actors, but definitely it, it had a wonderful energy that I think really changed the feel of the film. And I got it, I just got it right away. By the end of the day, I totally understood what what had been missing in the other uh work and and what Z- what bob zemeckis when, and bob gale were really writing for
0: and of course you play stella baines the the uh, mother uh, i guess the grandmother of marty but the mother of, of leah thompson's character lorraine baines um you know my father was born in the, in the mid 40s uh, 1945 and when we watched the movie together He's like, "Man, that they really nail especially your character, you know uh-huh. what mothers were like uh, you know when uh-huh. he was growing up because he was probably uh, 10 or 11 around 1955." And right. he's like, "That's just kind of that that's exactly how the times were." Did did, did that help you like knowing you that you've kind of been through you that bet. time? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you bet. And and also another thing that kind of <laughs> helped me I think was one I, I You know, once I got in costume and I got on set and they did my hair and makeup and I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, God, I look like Lucille Ball. Yeah,
0: (laughs) there's (laughs) a little
1: bit of a Lucy thing that creeps Mm -hmm. in there. And I didn't plan that. I mean, it just really came off feeling that era and seeing my, you know, the look of my character in the mirror and being reminded, and it just kind of gave it a buoyancy, too, that I did associate with women of the time, I mean, for sure, it was post-war, and, you know, there was, a, there was an optimistic feel in the world, and television was this fabulous new thing, and, yeah, so, uh, sweet of your dad to say that, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, and um, that scene, the scene that you're in is what has my favorite, line from the whole movie um which is when when he says uh, uh <laughs> he's an idiot it comes from upbringing his parents are probably idiots too i mean it's, right. it's my favorite line in the whole movie um there's also a point though to where you know they say who the hell is john f kennedy right and then little did anybody in the country know 5 years from then he'd be the president of the united states That's, um yeah. now i always like i had burton gilliam on a few weeks ago who of course was in paper moon and back to the future 3 um I'm always interested for people who are around for Ken with Kennedy's assassination, because I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm a few hundred miles north of where it happened or south of where it happened.
1: Right, Um, Right.
0: What do you remember about that day?
1: Oh God, I was in college and, um, it was, you know, shortly before Thanksgiving, right before our Thanksgiving break. And it turned out that I was staying and I'm not sure. I can't remember why, but I had to stay on campus over the Thanksgiving holiday. I get probably because I was going home for Christmas, and you know, to to fly from Chicago to Los Angeles was no mean feat. And it was expensive. So it was one or the other. It was either I was going to stay at, in school uh, for Thanksgiving, or I was going to go, home, you know, stay home at Christmas, which I really didn't want to do, which was a longer break. So I, was, I had to stay on campus, and my boyfriend at the time, was going off on a hunting trip to wisconsin right (laughs) and um and it was dismal i mean it was just a really dismal sad horrible time but i had been i got sick i got a little bit of the flu or something and i had been i was in the infirmary right before the break and and there was all this whispering going on and Oh my God. Oh no. You know, I could hear this. It was very spooky and awful. And I got up out of bed and I went out to wherever there was a nurse and, and she told me that the president had been killed. And I was, I was just, uh, I probably had a fever. It was a terrible time anyway. I remember that I just got up and got dressed and said, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to find my boyfriend. I mean, I just wanted to find somebody solid I could hang on to. And, uh, and so I, di- I did, and we, I just remember that we spent a long time just walking around campus being so stunned and so frightened. And w- we had already been through the the Bay of Pigs scare, um, which had been horrible too, because suddenly all the guys on campus thought, well, I guess we're going to war, you know? And we were all, it was a very, very difficult tense time so i remember that very clearly and then very interestingly and it may have been 1976 ish i want to say uh i did a television movie called the killing of lee harvey no the the trial lee harvey oswald the trial of, of lee harvey oswald thank you yeah and i did it there and we were the first people group of people allowed into the book depository for the filming after, after this. And so it was, that was a, that was an extraordinary experience because it was intact. It was exactly as it had been left after, after the assassination, after all the investigation, after the investigators left and everybody got sealed up and we were, I forget Larry's last name, but he was the producer, writer. And he he was a was a a master at, you know, getting people to do things for him and (laughs) got us in there. And we were it was, I just remember so clearly being up in that Lauren Green and I and a few of the crew were up in the depository. And I sat in that window and I looked out that very window onto the grassy knoll. And it was just a very odd sensation to have lived through that, you know, lived through it at college and then
0: reliving through it. Right. Just, you know, some years later, I actually went to the depository for the first time this year, about two Uh months ago.
1: It's open now, right?
0: It's open. Yeah. And Yeah. And, and, and it's the JFK museum and staring out that window. It definitely, it sends the chill up your spine. You yeah. know, it really does. Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. very, very odd feeling being there. Um, well, again, Back to the Future comes out. It's a massive hit. All these years later, people are still talking about it. They're still wanting to see more, do more. I'm sure do you're well. you're at conventions all the time. People are telling you what the movies mean to them. Of course, they're near and dear to my heart. Um, what do or what does Back to the Future mean to you, though?
1: Well, now it, it means a whole other thing than what it meant at the time. And now I am just uh, gobsmacked, really, by the, the adoration of the fans, the fact that it's, we're into our third generation of fandom now, and that it has this enduring quality. And the fans themselves, there's a real, in my experience, there's, a, there's quite a sweetness. To the people who uh, attach themselves to this film and care about this film and want to pass it on to their own, you know, to their children and their grandchildren, and uh, as something sort of wonderful, it's, it's to me. I think it's 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 the way I feel, felt, and feel about "It's a Wonderful Life," which for me was one of the great films of all time. Mm-hmm. So I can relate to how personal. Uh, an attachment people can have to to a film and I'm just honored you know to be a part of something that has created that kind of response in people and it's what you always wish for you always hope that the work you're involved in will have have an effect and preferably an effect for the positive and the good but you never know so it's been it's been a real delight and I'm I'm so happy for everyone who was involved in it you know.
0: It, it uh it's it's impacted yeah. millions of people and, and myself included. So I really uh, appreciate the time. I'm going to stick to our time here. I really appreciate
1: That's it,
0: uh, Francis, for you taking the time to uh, talk to me today, and um, I just really appreciate it.
1: Well, me too. It's been a real pleasure. You're just very easy to talk to, and and I love your enthusiasm for all things film.
0: Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. The legend herself, Francis Lee <laughs> McCain, going to stay. Francis, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Brad. Thanks.
0: I mean, come on. How awesome was Frances Lee McCain? How awesome is Frances Lee McCain? I'll answer that for you. She is incredible. Uh, big fan. Big fan for me. Um, that was a fun conversation that I had. I'm so glad that we finally got her on the books and we're finally able to uh, commit to one another for that 30-minute period of talking about her life. And, guys, thank you for committing me to me by listening to this podcast every single week. We really appreciate it. Season 9 continues on. We're, we're getting closer to the end of the season, but it's it's going to continue on, ladies and gentlemen. So until next time. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore. This is the only podcast looking back in time with the great film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future, and we will see you in the future.